Okay, well, we're back. Thank you everyone for your patience. Uh, well, we, uh, I took a little time off in the summer and we are going to, just to schedule the next couple of weeks, we have two more weeks until this week and next week until we finish the book. And then the next Thursday after that, what I'd like to do is do a summary, a review of the entire book. So like you walk away with like the final points of like what exactly, so just like really the bird's eye view, uh, the bullet points, because you know, he goes on a lot of tangents, we talk, tackle a lot of things along the way. What are the main points that the Ramban wants you to walk away from in finishing this book. So that's our goal, three more weeks. And then my hope, and I'm, feel free to give me feedback, my hope after Sukkot is to start something new. Uh, I was inspired by the fact that we got through such a complex book, but I'd like to tackle another complex book, but also a very fundamental one. Um, it is something called the Be'er Hagola by the Maharal of Prague. Uh, the Be'er Hagola is a book where he explains rabbinic Judaism. You know, many people have a lot of questions about their relation, you know, the relationship between the oral law and the written law, what's it all about, what is, his, what is its function, what is the mean, all of that, every single element, when people say the rabbis in a derogatory fashion or with a question mark, he addresses more or less those questions. It gives you a profound new understanding of the relationship and how fundamental the rabbinic law is to Judaism. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to do after Sukkot. It'll be a little ambitious, also a complex book, but We'll have a good time. Okay, so with that, let's jump in. Uh, let's begin at this, this, this next section where his main point that he's trying to make, just to remind us, is that Olam Haba, Olam Haba is a place where, uh, Olam Haba is a place where we have both body and soul. Both body and soul. That is his main thing that he wants to impress upon us, the main idea that he wants to impress upon us. And we'll see later why he's making such a big deal about this point. Uh, we'll see not everyone agrees, and, and we'll see what he says about that. But let's just do a quick review since it's been a long time. We have, just to remind ourselves, the different stages of life. There is Olam Hazeh, which literally means this world, the world as we know it, the world that you and I are in right now. There is what we call Olam Hanishamot, the world of the souls. When a person dies, their soul goes to the world of souls. And there are two directions in the world of souls, directions. By directions, we mean there's, so to speak, going down, Gehenim. Okay, and we spoke about the process of Gehenim and all that. And then there is Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. But that is all in the world of the souls. And then, at some point, we have what we call the resurrection of the dead, where the dead come back, which we touched upon briefly in our class. And then there is what is called the Messianic era, rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, etc. And then, and then after that, there is what we call Olam Haba, the world to come. This is the world where we have complete reward, complete bliss. The point that he's trying to impress upon us is that in Olam Haba, our bodies are there as well. It is not just the place for our souls. Okay? And we'll see why he's making such an emphasis on that point. But let's now first see one of the sources uh, that, that he brings uh, to describe this, and, and we'll go on a little bit of a tangent as we see these sources because there's some t- fascinating things which are touched upon. So, begin on the first page. Midrash Eilish Shemos Rabbah. It is a Midrash from Shemos. Okay, so Midrashic teaching uh, from Shemos. And it says like this, Asara Dvarim, 10 things. Asid HaKadosh Baruch Hu L'chadesh L'olam There are 10 things that God is going to create, or God is going to, yeah, create in Olam Haba, okay? So Olam Haba, this last stage, what, is, what are they? Harishona shu'asid l'ha'ir la'olamo. The first is that God is going to bring light to this world. What does that mean? What is this light? As we'll see, it's a healing light. Im adam chola, if a person is sick, ha'kadosh baruch gozer la'shemesh umarapo. God is going to decree that the sun will heal the person. 
How does that work? I don't know exactly, but if you recall, there is a famous teaching that Avram, after he reserved, after his circumcision, went outside and God, so to speak, uh, allowed the sun to shine down the special lights to allow him to be healed. That is what the Midrash, but Rashi quotes that. So the first thing is there'll be complete healing. In Olam Abba, no illness. Okay? The second thing. Motzi Mayim Chayim Yerushalayim. God is going to take out uh, water, light, water of life from Jerusalem, from Yerushalayim. And through that, not only, so the first one seems to be that someone who is, you know, has a broken foot or whatever it is, they're going to be healed. The second one is a machla. Anyone who has like illness or disease, they're also going to be healed. Okay? So the first two things that are unique about Olam Abba is there will be healing in the world. Wonderful. Vashlishis, the third, Osa ilanos liten perosehem, a person, uh, the trees will give forth their fruits, not on a yearly basis, but on a monthly basis. Every month, the trees will bring forth new fruits. The Adam Ocha Mehem Umisrap, and a person will eat them, and again, there'll be some form of healing. Haravias. Let's just pause here for a second, because really, the point that he's trying to make is already clear on the first three points. Does this sound like Olam Haba, which is what the Medrash is talking about? Is a physical reality or a spiritual reality? Physical. He's talking about healing of the body. Fruit bearing, you know, fruit being produced on a monthly basis, right? So the main point, and again, we're going to about to go on a tangent. The main point that Ramban wants to bring out over here, Olam Haba, has, our bodies, our physical bodies will be in Olam Haba. That's the point that he wants to impress upon you. Let's keep on reading. Okay. Haraviyas, the fourth thing. Shem bonim kol ha-chorvos, all of the destroyed, uh, all of the things which all the re- destroyed places will be rebuilt. Vein makom charev ba'olam. There will be no destroyed places in the world. Even Sodom, right? The terrible city of Sodom will be rebuilt in Olam Haba. Okay, so obviously this needs more explaining. Why is that so significant? But it seems to be saying that uh, whatever is destroyed, there's something that, that is going to, you know, the, the way that some understand this is that Sodom would seem to be like, Sodom is the, the, yeah, it is the epitome of evil. It's the model of evil. What does it mean it'll be rebuilt? Not only physically but will it be rebuilt, but the point is that even in what we typically see as evil, there is some rectifiable component. There's something positive that could be rectified, that could be found. So even a city like Sodom has some values, they are perverted, they are misconstrued, but there's something that'll be rebuilt. So even the cities of Sodom, yes, physically will be rebuilt, but the point is that there's something that is, there's a ultimate tikkun, right? Tikkun olam comes from the idea of the messianic, of the, of the, of olam abba. L'sakein olam b'machut shakai. That the world will be rectified. That even something like Sodom, there's a kernel of goodness that'll be rebuilt at this time. Okay. Hachamishi shuyivna yushlaim be'even sapir. Um, the fifth thing that will happen is that Yerushalayim will be rebuilt through this, something called the Sapir Stone, which we're not going to get into right now. Va'osan ha'avanim, and the stones will be used to rebuild Yerushalayim. Mi'iros kashemesh, will shine like the sun. Ve'umos ha'olam ba'in v'rom b'chodon shal Yisrael. And all the nations of the world will come and they'll be able to see the glory of the Jewish people. So obviously the stone shining is more than just the physical stone shining. It means that the Jewish people will be uh, in all their glory, moral glory, presumably ethical glory, and people will come to see, wow, this is how people are meant to live, right? So people, all the nations of the world will come and Israel will be tr- a true, true light onto the nations. Yes? So they all evil people. Yeah, so he doesn't suggest that the people will be... Correct. So it seems like, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, there's our identity and then there's our, our broader identity. You know, there's, there's the people of Sodom and then there's Sodom as an abstract concept, you know, and, and yeah, 
Correct. Meaning the people of Sodom, they were evil. They were destroyed. Their souls are just presumably destroyed or, or in Gehenna or whatever. Uh, but yeah, he's not suggesting that evil people will come back, but sometimes there, is, there are things which, which perhaps they're part of something larger than themselves, which will be rebuilt. Yeah. Yeah. Sorted out, everybody was fixed, everybody was, so theoretically, the, the, everything had been finished, and then would come Olam Abba. And, and, correct. And, and then we would get to, so, theoretically, all the people in Stone will have gone through Gehenna, and they were, Right, we have to keep in mind. This was the end, end, end all. Correct, but, so we have. there's anything going on at the same time. That's no true. That 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 a hundred percent. But here here's the 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 disclaimer, the qualification that the Ramban said that we we it's a little hard to swallow, and that is that Gehenim that some people Gehenim's not enough for, right? We saw there's actually a whole list um, in the begin in, in in the tractate of Sanhedrin, uh, you know that that these people don't have a portion in Olam Abba. And, and the Gemara goes into larger sections, and we see that as like a bunch of different models of different types of sins that a person could cross a line that like no. It's it. And basically, Gehenim won't be enough. You know, sometimes, you know, you can fix something and sometimes it's just, you can't, right? So, so the, the, such a reality exists as well. Um, so not everyone will be here in Olam Haba. Yeah. Okay. Um, na, 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 na. Where are we? Okay. Ashish is the sixth. Upara vidov tirena. Okay, so this is, a, this is from a, a verse. We probably know the other part of the verse, but it's the cow and the bear will graze, right? There's the lamb and the lion uh, will, will graze as well, part of the same sukkim in, in Isaiah, that basically the animals, there'll be complete peace, right? Ashviyas and the seventh, shumevi kol achayos v'chala ofos v'chala ormasim, v'kores imahem bris v'im Yisrael. That all the animals of the world will create a covenant with the Jewish people. Now, what, what, what exactly does that mean? What does that mean, the covenant? Yes? Doesn't Pirkei Avos say that all of Israel has a has a, a chalik in Olam Haba? It does. It does. And then and then it's and that's how the Mishnah and in, in Sanhedrin says Kol Yisrael Yish. What that means, the way it's understood from the in Sanhedrin, it also says that it starts Kol Yisrael Yish Lam Chalik Olam Haba. Great, but then you keep on reading. Except for so what it means is that the 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 initial assumption, in other words. Uh, you know, the, the assumption should be that we have a portion of Olam Abba unless we lose, we squander that gift, right? So we're born with a portion of Olam Abba. Depends what we do. We could lose that portion, heaven forbid. Yeah. Um, okay, so what does this mean that the animals create a covenant? So again, it's not really our focus right now, but a quick tangent. Uh, there is a fascinating uh, set of teachings around vegetarianism. Anyone here a vegetarian? Okay, neither am I. Um, Rav Cook. Rav Cook was a uh, vegetarian, or at least during the week. Sorry, go ahead. My grandfather was a vegetarian. Grandfather was vegetarian. My great grandfather was a vegetarian. Wow. And a rub, and they almost didn't give him smithen. Uh, amazing, he right? Because he was such a vegetarian that he wore um, a cloth shirt. Wow. Wow. Rope around his waist okay. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's that's the real. So yeah, I mean, nowadays that that would be a little bit more common. Still not for a rabbi necessarily, but a little more common. But to have someone do a great grandfather, and we're going back a few years over here, um, that that's pretty remarkable. Rav Cook was similarly iconoclast in the sense that he was a quasi-vegetarian, and he had a whole philosophy around animals. And, and it's, a, it's a philosophy which, when you read the Chumash carefully, critically, you see quite clearly. You know, before uh, Noah, people were not allowed to eat animals. 
And it's quite clear, you know, the way that many understand it is that, there, that, that Adam and Eve and all of humankind's responsibility was not just for other human beings, was, but the animal kingdom was part, kind of part of a society. Granted, there were gradations, there were, you know, people and then animals, but they were still part of one group. You know, it wasn't like two very distinct groups. And it was only after the flood for reasons that, you know, we're not getting into right now, you know, the simplest one way of looking at it uh, that Rav Cook, I, I think, speaks about and, and, and others speak about is that, that God said, you know what, maybe it's too much for you to be taking care of the animals as well. Just, just focus on the humans, you know, just focus on, on, you know, the immediate species. But the point is that animals in theory, in theory, were much more similar to human beings and, and could be elevated, right? So Rav Cook, Rav Cook again, in, in light of this, we could understand that he was, again, a quasi-vegetarian and he did have a belief. He has a, a couple of teachings which are a little controversial where he seems to indicate that at least at some point, maybe not in the Messianic era, but at least in Olam Haba, perhaps animal sacrifice at some point would be eliminated. Okay? It seems like there's, you know, again, we're seeing these two stages. There's the Messianic era. We believe the rebuilding of the base of Mikdash as we know it, meaning temple with sacrifice. But at a later, more elevated stage, animals will be elevated. The world will be, continue to be elevated. And that means the animals will be elevated and therefore be inappropriate just like it's inappropriate right now to, to think, to take a human and sacrifice because there's a divine image within us. Right? We, had Selim Elohim. We, we wouldn't, heaven forbid, hurt another person, heaven forbid, kill another person, you know, for, even for a godly thing because there's something godly about a human. In this later stage, the animals will be elevated as well. And that's perhaps what this Medrash is touching upon over here, that there is this bris, there is this covenant, there is a relationship between man, humankind, and animal, and the animal kingdom. And, and again, that might be expressed in some form of vegetarianism, just like Adam and Eve had prior to those sins. Yes? A man will eat an animal, and an animal will eat a man. We don't know that. They do. They would, they would kill. They would. I think an animal would eat a man. I think. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But but we see in this in this uh, yeah. So yeah. Right now, right now, it's survival of the fittest. You know, across the board for both humans and and for animals. Uh, but the the belief is that again, this world. It's not just a matter of peacefulness. It's the fact that the world is being. Let's understand it clear, clearly. It's not just that the world will be more at peace and we're going to be kinder. It's that the world is going to be slightly you know elevating and elevating. You know, right now. You know, an animal is just not a holy thing, right? A human being is a holy thing. Every human being is holy, right? A, an animal is not. An animal might be nice. You might, we might like animals, etc. But the idea is that in the world to come, the world is going to be constantly elevating and therefore the animals will no longer be here. They'll be over here and therefore, okay, can't touch them. Yes. But also if there's no birth and there's no death in the Olam yeah. then there certainly can't be sacrifice. And, the, and it's You're saying we're going to run out of animals. It's going to be, it's going to be, I mean, if there's no birth and there's no death, it's... Who said, I'm not sure if there's no birth, but mm, I guess, well, I don't know. I think that would be good. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of a status, it's like, it's the, really the end of days that mm-hmm. everything remains, right? All the dead, all the alive, everybody, everything that was will continue to be imperfect. In Correct. Correct, correct. So you're saying technically it might be challenging starting to sacrifice, take, take out some animals because uh, where, where are they going to be? Re, re, uh, there's no death. Okay, but I'm not sure if there's no birth, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I hear you. And that's the, na- the, na- the next, the next uh, the ne- we're up to Hachi. The, the ninth one is exactly that there's no more death, but the eighth one, She'enot bechi v'yalalaba olam, there'll be no more crying, uh, no more hardship. Hachi she'en ba'om naves, as Rachel just said, no death. 
Okay? There's just going to be joy in the world. Okay, so this is, a, again, the teaching, fascinating in and of itself. We could spend hours on it. The main point that he's going, trying to bring out is that clearly we're talking about a physical reality. For someone a spiritual reality, these words don't line up. They just, you know, about healing and the fruits and the, and the rebuilding. Like, it, it sounds like a physical reality in Olam Abba. Let's keep on reading. Call Eludvarim Brurim, or at the bottom paragraph in the Hebrew, you could turn the page if you're following in the English. Call Eludvarim Brurim, all these matters are clear. Sha'olam Habah Amor Bechol Makom, that Olam Abba that's mentioned everywhere. Eino Olam Hanishamos, Vaschar, is not the world of souls and reward Hamagilahem, Miyad Achre Hamisa. It is not the same place as the world where a soul goes immediately after death which we call, again, Olam HaNeshamos. Ela Olam She'asir HaKadosh Baruch Hu It is a world that God is going to create. La'achar Yimosa Mashiach Utchiyas Amesim after the Messianic era, after the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Uvavreshis Rab, another source to support his argument. Kishem Shitirasa Ba'olam Hazeh. Another Medrash says that just like our creation in this world, Kachitirasa Ba'olam Abba, so to our creation in the world to come. Just like in this world, it begins with skin and flesh and it ends with sinews and bones, so too in in the world to come. Also flesh and bones. So again, once again, another source. And again, you're asking yourself, why is he making such a big fuss about this? We'll see. Uh, but, but another source which indicates that Olam Haba includes not just the soul, but also the body. Okay, let's now, one more source which he's going to bring. It's one of my favorite sources. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating. It's, again, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to unpack it a little bit because it's just a, a beautiful tangent. Uh, but he's going to bring another source where he talks about Olam Haba and, and distinguishes between Olam Haba and, and this world as we know it. And, but uh, as you'll see, there's just some, some very nice ideas that, that come out of this piece. So let's see. Okay, so we're on the second page, the Hebrew in the middle of the page, the English uh, right under it. In the Gemara in Erechin, Arachin. The Tanya of Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says like this, Kinar Shalemigdash, the Kinar, the harp that is in the temple, that was in the temple, Sheva Nimin Haya. It had seven strings. Anyone here play the harp? Didn't think so. Okay, I don't know how many strings are on a harp. But let's, let's follow, let's follow what, what we're getting at. There are seven strings. In the harp of the temple. Shenemer, as it says, Sova smachos espanecha. Okay, the verse says that we will uh, make joyful to your face. Okay, make joyful to your, in front of your presence. Altikre sova. Sova means like a satisfactory joy. Sova. Don't read sova ella. Sheva. The word sova, depends how you vowelize it, could mean sova, which is satisfaction, or sheva, it could mean seven. Okay, so basically, Rabbi Yehuda's first point of a statement is that the harp in the temple, in the previous temples, had seven strings. Continues. Shalimos HaMashiach, the, the, the strings of the harp in the Messianic era, Shmona, it will have eight strings. Shenemar, as it says, Lamnatseach al Hashminis. Okay, so there is a chapter in Tehillim which says there's a song of the composer, Al Hashminis, over the eight. So what is over the eight? Some understand that chapter of Tehillim is actually a reference to bris milah, the eighth day, okay? But others understand that it's a reference to, as, he, as this Medrash understands, this Gemara, that it's a reference to the Messianic era. And it begins, Lam Nashseach al Hashminis. It is a song for the composer 
over the eighth. Eighth what? The eighth string that is added to the harp in the Messianic era. Shela olam haba, in the world to come, eser, there will be ten strings on this harp. Shenemar, as it says, ale asor vale navel. Okay, another chapter in Tehillim, which, uh, which is a reference to instruments, but in this context, ale asor means from the word eser, which is the number ten. Okay, that's the Medrash. It tells us in this world, the harp has seven strings. In the Messianic era, it has eight strings. And then in, the, in Olam Abad, it has ten strings. What in the world is this talking about? Who cares? Ten strings, 15 strings. You ever play guitar? You have a, you know, I had a, what's, what's a six, normally six strings, right? So you have a 12 string, right? Uh, you can get a 12. Who cares? Like, what's this all about? What, what, is, what, is, this, what is this teaching all about? The explanation is as follows. Kiakinor, the harp. Uklei hazemer and all instruments shebemigdash specifically in the temple remez lahasagas hamachshava. It is a symbol or symbolism for comprehension. Okay, comprehension, not just what well, we like uh, intellectual comprehension, but spiritual comprehension. Comprehension about divine matters, understanding God. She nitles beruach because um, because our understanding of God, spiritual understanding, is spiritual. It is ruach. In the physical world, there is nothing more spiritual than music. Isn't that a beautiful line? The Ramban, you think, I don't know, I think of the Ramban as this towering academic, dusty, you know, this big beard is sitting in his, in his cloistered in his office, you know, and, 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 and all brainy. And he says, there is nothing more spiritual than music. So when the, when the Midrashim want to give an, an analogy, a meta, rather a metaphor, for, what, for something that's spiritual, the metaphor that, is most, that makes the most sense is to use music. Because music, if you want to talk about something which is uplifting, something spiritual, you talk about music. Music is something which is, you know, it's hard to put your finger on, right? It, it moves us, but it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always move us. It doesn't move us over here. It moves us over here. It moves us in our heart, right? There's something, there's something which it almost transcends our reasoning. Right? So when we talk, want to talk about knowledge and lo- some knowledge which transcends regular human logic, music is a perfect analogy to do so because it is something that is also, we understand it's meaningful, we understand it's sophisticated, we understand it, could, it is powerful, but it sometimes is beyond, you try explaining why you like your favorite song, I'm sure you'll do a decent job, but at some point it gets past that. Right? Sometimes it transcends words. Okay? In the physical world, there's nothing more spiritual like music. Okay? And this is what this is a reference to. When we talk about understanding God, another word for this is the Holy Spirit. I know that's usually a word that is found in Christianity. Uh, but Ruach HaKodesh, that's what it means. Ruach HaKodesh means a Holy Spirit. It is a spirit of godliness which, which descends upon us. It's not, you, you can't understand God by books alone. You know, this is a, 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 a constant idea in Judaism that you could be the most knowledgeable person in the world, but unless you are refined and unless you have a relationship with God, you're going to be missing a dimension of that logic. You know, I know many people, you know, there are people out there who could, could you know, who know Kabbalah, who know the mystical writings far better than, you know, than, than many rabbis, but, or many, many great scholars and teachers. But, but if you don't have that, that inner moral, ethical, spiritual components, you don't really get it. You get it almost superficially. You get it, uh, you maybe in a profound and deep way, but it's still, it's not, it's, you're not getting it to its depth, right? So, this is Ruach HaKodesh. This is the spirit of, of holiness. And in this world, Yasigu HaChachma Beruach HaKodesh Sheva Sphiros. Okay? So in this world, the world as we know it, we can understand God to the extent of seven. 
seven spheres, okay? So if some of you have like a little bit of a background in mystical writings, we know that there are different, there are different levels of godliness. Um, and there are seven is the most basic sense of, of levels of God that we could attain. And so there's this idea that, that you could attain godliness, but only up to the letter, only up to the number seven. It has a limitation, right? The number seven is found where? The number seven is, is oftentimes the number that is found that represents the natural world as we know it, right? There are seven days of the week, right? That is the cycle of creation, right? So seven, whenever you see the number seven in any mystical writings, it always represents the limitations of the physical world. That is the number seven. So when we say that we could understand God, there are limitations. It stops at seven, okay? Um, and where, where are these things? The Yidbak Oran, the place where this light was found most profoundly was the Mishkan, in the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the Migdash, or in the two temples. V'nir Mazos B'Sheva Neros, Shalabesa Migdash. And it's hinted to in the seven lights of the menorah, right? In the base of Migdash, how many lights were there in the menorah? Not eight like we have, but rather seven. So what is the seven lights? Just like in, in, in our, in Western society, when we think of an idea, how do you paint an image of an idea? If you wanted to draw a picture of an idea, say, oh, I had an idea. What, what image would you paint? A light bulb, that's right, a light, right? So light means illumination, understanding, right? So the menorah represents seven lights. Seven ways of understanding, seven, but, it, it, but seven ways of connecting to Hashem, okay? Um, and that is, and the temple, the temple, right, the, 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 the important, this, again, this, this is such an important piece in and of itself. We could just spend our whole class on this. But the, 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 when we think about why the basement was such a crucial place in Judaism, he's explaining to us right over here. Because that's wh- that was the conduit. That was the medium through which we connected to Hashem. Not just it's the place we went to, but it was the it was the it was the pipeline through which all of our of our of our spirituality came through, right? So in other words, right now we're we're kind of like grasping and uh, where's God, right? We come to Shul, we go to the Western Wall, but we don't really have like a direct communication. It's like you ever you ever uh, you know I, I you know you ever you ever like talk to someone on a, on a like on a, when you're like driving through a tunnel or in an elevator, right? It's like. Yeah, you get bits and pieces, words. You know, th- that's what it is. Basically, we don't have like a place. Like there's no real connection. The connection has been shot, right? There's, there's all these barriers. Without a base on Migdash, the place where we had that, that connection was the base on That's what he's telling us over here. That the place through which the light of God, the illumination of God, the understanding of God really emanated, came through, was the base of Migdash. Without it, it's like we're roaming. You, go, you know, when you're roaming, it's, like, yeah, it's choppy. You bit, bits and pieces, that's what we have. We're, we're roaming, Okay. Lefikach, therefore, Yermos Bekinar, and therefore this is all symbolized with the harp. Sheva Klei Hakol, Ba'ola Mazeh, the seven notes of music. Anyone here play, whatever music instrument you play, there's seven notes, right? The scale is seven, right? So the seven scales represent the knowledge that we have in this world. It is the, it is the scales of music, right? And we know that each scale repre- you know, is, is, is a different note. And so the idea is that we have seven different ways of connecting to God, which is amazing, it's wonderful, but it's limited. Limosa Mashiach, Tusag Sphira Shminis. In the Messianic era, there is an eighth understanding. There's an elevation. We'll have slightly more understanding in the Messianic era. Eight represents something which is supernatural. It is something which transcends the physical world. And therefore, the Messianic era, which is when we, the miracles begin, when a whole new world, a whole new reality begins, there's going to be eight. And that's what that Medrash meant, that in the Messianic era, there are eight strings in the harp. Ula Olam Haba. And in Olam Haba, the comprehension will be complete. And there will be 10 levels, right? That's what it means when it says Olam Haba, the harp 
is going to have 10 strings. It doesn't literally mean that all of a sudden someone's going to start making music with harps of 10 strings. No. What it means is that music, which represents our understanding of God, will be complete. 10 is like a complete unit, right? Certainly, in, in, yeah, So 10 is a complete unit. And the idea is that in this world, our com- comprehension of God is limited. Even when we had the temple, it was limited to seven. In the Messianic era, it's going to be elevated to eight. In the Messianic era, in, excuse me, in Olam Haba, it is going to be complete. So that's what the Medrash meant when it says the music will be complete. There'll be 10 notes in the musical scale. Because what that means is that there'll be 10, that it'll be complete comprehension of Hashem. That's what Olam Haba. Okay, so first of all, that's what the Medrash means. And that's the, that's the, the, the depth and that's the beauty. And that's really what Olam Haba is all about. What is Olam Haba about? It's about understanding Hashem. It's about coming with a full comprehension of who God is, which... I don't know. Maybe it does sound appealing to you. Maybe it doesn't. If we would have to pick what's the most exciting thing in the world, I'm not sure if that would be the first thing that comes to our mind. But when you think about it, it's the most meaningful thing in the world. It is the thing which transcends the world. It is the most real and only real thing in the world. So yes, it is the most gratifying, most enjoyable, most everything, you know, thing that we could possibly, uh, you know, attain is comprehension of Hashem. And what that means is a closeness to Hashem. Think about it as, as feeling like if you've ever felt like momentarily a closeness to God, Okay, it's that that's a tiny like for a spark. Maybe it's a Yom Kippur. Maybe it's a in Yushalayim. Maybe it's whatever it is, that little spark. It's endless. It's that. And it's it's on. It's so much more powerful. And it's endless. It's, it's endless. And it grows and it grows and it grows on itself. That's what Olam Haba is. That's what it is. It's the full comprehension. There's no limitations. Here we're, we're jumping. We're trying. Give me like one second of closeness, right? If, if I had over my whole Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, two minutes where I like, I feel like I'm really talking to Hashem. Success, right? That's great. I feel like a real connection, but it's going to be like that endlessly. Eternally. That's what Olam Abba is. That, this, that, that sense of connection, unbroken, unhind, you know, without, uh, not hindered by anything at all. It's just complete and absolute connection to Hashem. That's what Olam Abba is all about. That's what we're hoping for. And that's what we're working for. The better we are, the greater we are, the more Torah we learn, the be- more Midos we have, the more we will be capable of listening and appreciating that music, right? That, that's, what, that's what we're doing in this world. We're preparing ourselves for Olam Abba. But all, everything we do refines our musical ear, our spiritual ear, to be able to appreciate that beautiful music. That's what this is all about. That's the end game. The end game is listening to that beautiful music of God. Cool? Great? With me? Awesome. That is the final stage. And let's now go and... Um, what should we do now? Let's see. Uh, um, let's see if we should read this next passage. Um, okay, I, I'm just going to summarize the next passage because, and, and maybe just speak it out and there might be some follow-up, follow-up questions. That is, what, he, what he's trying to help us understand again is, is what, the, what Olam Abba is all about, what it, what it, what, 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 uh, and, and it's the final stage, and it's a place with both our body, not only our soul, but also our body. In this next paragraph they have in front of us, which I didn't translate, excuse me, um, he describes in more detail, more proofs that Olam Abba has bodies. And you're all wondering, because I keep on pushing it off, why is he making such a big fuss about this, okay? The reason he's making such a big fuss about this is because of someone who lived a short while before him. And that is Maimonides, the Rambam. Maimonides, the Rambam, um, in describing Olam Haba, describes Olam Haba as a place of the soul, okay? The soul. And that was very challenging for many people. It's very challenging for many people because it sounds like what he says is after we die... And this is what many people normally, I think you hear most people say, is you go where? To Olam Haba, immediately after death, 
I think before we spent this whole past few classes, you would have said the same thing. What do you go when you die? You go to Olam Abba. That's what the Rambam, Maimonides, actually said. And it sounds like, if you, well, if you go to Olam Abba, then and that's the ultimate goal, then where does the resurrection of the dead come in? Right? Because you're in that soul world. It doesn't seem to make too much sense. Does the Rambam actually believe in a resurrection of the dead? Now, we know in some places he talks about it. In other places, he doesn't. Right? So there's a lot of confusion around what the Rambam actually believes. And we understand where the Rambam's coming from with this belief that, the, that, that Olam Haba, and that when we die, we go to the soul world. And, that, and Olam Haba, according to him, is just a world of souls. You know why we understand where he's coming from? Because that is exactly what, or more or less what, the Greeks believed. You see, the Rambam was heavily influenced by Aristotle. Okay, he considered Aristotle to be one of his teachers. He didn't actually meet Aristotle. Aristotle lived, you know, a thousand years before him or whatever. But basically, he saw himself as a student of Aristotle. And in their Aristotelian way of thinking, Olam Haba, like the, they believed in some form of an afterlife. They believed that as a person attained more knowledge, their mind, which they believed is where the soul, you know, existed, basically connected to what they called the higher intellect. And the more knowledge a person was able to gain, the higher they were able to, the higher level they were able to attain in what we'll call Olam Abba, the world to come. And that is really what happens after death is that the soul or the brain, you know, the mind basically connects itself based on what it was able to attain and connects itself to that higher power, the higher intellect. And that is, that's the way the Greeks spoke. And the Rambam basically borrowed all that language and said, this is what Olam Abba is. It's basically our mind connecting to the higher intellect. Okay? Now again, with that thinking, you have to wonder, well, where does the Messianic era play a role, okay? So, so that, that's one big issue that, that came about in, in his writings. But let's just, once we're at it, I think it's worth spending a few more moments just explaining why the Rambam was so controversial beyond that. So one area of controversy is where does the resurrection of the dead come in? B, there is an emphasis on outside knowledge, right? In other words, what we call, you know, philosophy. He was clearly influenced and very much involved and oftentimes quoted, Aristotle and other Greek thinkers or, you know, other, other great philosophers. That was a part of his knowledge base. Not everyone liked that. Probably the, the first thing, though, the first thing that caused the, the Rambam to be so controversial, and here we're now we're getting on our tangents, um, is as follows. The Rambam, you know, he, he lived about a thousand years ago, and a thousand years ago is really when the Gaonic period was dying down. Who are the Gaonim? The Gaonim literally means geniuses, okay? It's a great title, right? People had the title. They were the Gaon. They were the genius, okay? And basically, in Babylon, from the year five, you know, 600 or so till around 1100, you know, about 1100, there were people who were called Gaonim. They, were, they had all of Judaism really centered around Babylon, you know, modern Iraq, okay? And this is where all, of, all, of the, all the yeshivas were. And all the rulings came from these places, Okay, and they had some incredible, incredible Gaon. And probably the most famous is a man by the name of Rosadia Gaon. Okay, he was brilliant, scholar, teacher, everything. But with time, you know, this went on oftentimes from father to son. Not every child is worthy of getting this mantle. And with time, it started to lose its power, its authority. Because A, the people in Babylon were not necessarily the greatest and, and the most brilliant. And B, people were starting to move to other places and starting to learn a lot. And things were developing. And there was a tension behind this place for 500 years was the center was seen as the authoritative place. Okay? And there was this subtle boiling tension between these other centers of Judaism which were starting to grow and Babylon. The Rambam, you saw most people play nice. They didn't really, you know, f- you know ruffle any feathers. The Rambam 
was a very strong-minded individual. There's some very, very forceful letters that he writes, basically saying, I couldn't care less what the Gaonim had to say about anything. They're not knowledgeable. They have no right to even being in this position. They only got it by dint of their birth. They don't know anything. Uh, it just completely, this, uh, it's a private letter, but he's speaking to you know, a colleague. He has zero respect for someone who doesn't earn and therefore deserve his respect. Someone who's born into position is not someone he feels is worthy of respect as a Torah scholar. doesn't work that way. You got to earn it. It doesn't matter what your last name is. doesn't matter who your father is, right? So the Rambam already politically put himself in a very tricky position because it was well known that he didn't uh, bow to the authority of the Babylonians. He felt, I have the knowledge. He has the tradition. He was clearly more knowledgeable. And therefore, there's already controversy in his lifetime uh, around that. The second piece of the controversy, again, is his outside knowledge. He's drawing upon Greek um, uh, you know, um, uh, Greek, um, Greek ideas, uh, philosophical ideas, which are not necessarily found in Judaism. And one expression of that is this specific issue of the resurrection of the dead. Where does it play a role? Does it play a role? According to the Rambam, if after you die, you go to Olam Abba, there's no place for the Messianic era. There's no place for the resurrection of the dead. Why would you want to come back here? According to him, being in your, just your soul is the highest place you could be. Why would you want to come back to the body? And therefore, there were those who argued that the Rambam did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's a pretty strong argument to be made, right? That basically puts him as a heretic, as someone who has no portion in the world to come. That's a problem, right? And so much so, with all these different elements floating around, in 1233, in 1233, many Jews were fighting against one of his most uh, controversial books, a book called The Guide to the Perplexed. They told, what was the Franciscans, I believe, uh, Dominicans, whatever it was, the leading uh, church in France, they, there were Jews who complained and said that The Guide to the Perplexed was causing people to develop heretical ideas that were antithetical to all religions. And in 1233, they burnt copies of The Guide to the Perplexed in the square of France, in the main square of France. This was seen as, obviously, this was a wake-up call that things, that things obviously got quite out of hand. And you see at that moment, you know, people starting to perhaps change their tune. Like, that was like, okay, clearly we have lost sight of what's going on over here. If this is what, we're, what we've come to, where Jewish books are being burnt in a, in a square, and actually not that many years later, copies of Wagon Loan and Wagon Load of the Talmud were actually burnt in that same square. So, you know, sort of infighting about one, one way, you know, do we, do we take the mystical way? Do we take the philosophical way? But ultimately, it led to the, to, to the people, to the French, ultimately uh, b- banning all Jewish books and burning our most sacred books, the ones, you know, the Talmud, which is agreed upon by all. One way or another, the Rambam's writings were controversial. The Ramban, Nachmanides, has a very interesting relationship with the Rambam. They don't actually communicate personally, but he has respect and at the same time, he has no problem arguing with him. So throughout his commentary in the Chumash, he acknowledges the Rambam's view, but he'll also argue with him left and right. Over here, regarding this particular piece, he feels the need to justify the Rambam. He understands that because of this controversy, books of the Rambam were burnt. That's unacceptable. You can't, it's one thing to say the Rambam made a mistake. It's another thing to call him a heretic. The Ramban, although he had many disagreements with the Rambam, was not willing to say that Maimonides was a heretic. And therefore, what he does, and we're not going to read this inside, what he does in this book, in, in, at the end of Shah Gamal, the last few chapters, the last few, last few paragraphs, is he ultimately goes through all of the Rambam's writings, and he suggests that it must be the Rambam does believe in the resurrection of the dead, but he sees it in a little bit of a different fashion. What he believes is we do go to Olam Abba, and then there is the resurrection of the dead, the body comes down to earth, and then it goes back to the soul world. That's how the Rambam must understand 
the sequence of events. Right? So you're with me? In other words, what happens is like this. Well, two tracks. There's this major debate in terms of what happens to a person after they die. Everyone believe there's Olam Hazed, there's this world. After a person dies, according to both the Ramban and Rambam, the soul goes to another place. The Ramban will call this place Olam Hanishamos, the world of the souls. The Rambam will call this next stage Olam Haba. But according to both of them, it's a reality of just the souls. According to both of them, there'll be a resurrection of the dead and they'll come back down to earth. Here's where it really diverges. The next stage, according to the Ramban, their body and soul stay down on earth. That is Olam Abba. According to the Rambam, the last stage has the body and soul separating again and the soul going back to the soul world, what he calls Olam Abba, right? So ultimately, it's not such a fundamental that not everyone agrees with this read of the Rambam. This is the Ramban's justification saying it cannot be that he rejects resurrection of the dead, Okay, and therefore we must come up with some way of reconciling these different ideas, and that's how he how he understands that basically there's two periods of olamaba. There's after we die is olamaba according to the Rambam, resurrection of the dead, and then olamaba again according to the Ramban. And I want to say the most classical way of understanding it is that death, just the soul, come back to earth, and olamaba includes both body and soul. Okay, any questions, thoughts? That is the Ramban's beautiful, uh, 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 very strong. And we, uh, it's a pity. Maybe I should have seen it inside because he's very strong. He's not, again, in his commentary in the Chumash, he takes the Rambam to, to town. Like he argues vehemently. But to call him a heretic, he's not going to last such a thing. He doesn't, just simply doesn't last such a thing. He has to justify, and he does. Um, and that is the, the second to last idea that we're going to see in this book. Next week, we'll see the final section. And then again, the week after that, we'll do a full review of this entire book. So we'll walk away with some clear, you know, ideas. Just do a summary. And so whenever you want to see, oh, you know, Shark Mole, yeah, I learned that book. You know, have your cheat sheet of all the different uh, ideas that we found in this book and you'll have all of uh, Jewish philosophy, uh, you know, laid out in, in just, uh, just a page. Yes? So, Olam Hanishamo mm-hmm. in English, 